How's it? Welcome to another episode of the Start of the Catalyst podcast brought to you by Sultan Ventures. This is the show where we interview entrepreneurs and investors on the stories of their success and failures too. I'm your host, Luke Tucker. Happy to be with you today. Our guest on this show is Susan Yamada. She's the Executive Director of the Pacific Asia Center for Entrepreneurship, or PACE. She was a founding CEO of Trustee, uh, had a long career working in, uh, with startups in California, and our conversation covers a wide range of topics. And this episode's a little bit different because we dive straight into the story. As I was chatting with Susan actually earlier in our conversation um, on life and career tips, and she was just giving me great knowledge. And so we just kind of pick up right in the middle of that conversation and kept the tape rolling. So uh, enjoy some great stories of her time uh, kicking off the conversation with um, the publishing company called Upside. And yeah, enjoy tons of info, really great tactical stuff. We talk about investing. We talk about her different experiences, uh, what she loves about being in a startup. Fantastic interview. Please enjoy my conversation with the incredible Susan Yamada. Uh, before we kind of came to that, I was actually really curious to see how you kind of went from the publishing company to trustee. Because it was, I mean, was there years in between? Was it three failed ideas in between, or was it co-founder from? Okay, the so publishing? I've never, I've never had the idea for the company. Okay, so so uh, upside, that was totally, you know, somebody else's idea. Yeah, I was the operations person was able to turn that around and get that on a growth trajectory and get profitable. When we hit that 20 some employees and I was not happy with it anymore, the guy who hired me was the chairman of the board. And I told him, you should come back and you should run it again. Kind of quirky guy. Um, so he came back and I wanted to do conferences, executive conferences, because that was our readership. They were all hmm. CEOs of but this nascent technology industry. And so we had done an executive um, um, summit. We called it the Upside Summit. And, you know, like people from, you know, the CEOs of Bell Atlantic, Larry Ellison came, you know, it's just like hundred of the, of the, these big names, wow. either the CEO or an EVP would come Um What's the Salesforce guy? Is that Mark? Benioff. Benioff. He was there with Larry Ellison <laughs> and they came. But I mean, it was just, it was so exciting to do that. And it was a startup. So I wanted to do that. But what happened in the meantime is our new uh, CEO, the guy who took my job, he fired me. <laughs> so you were working for Upside. Okay, As I was CEO. running upside. You were running it, right? Right. Yeah. So it was your company and right. you told us told the board of directors guy, take this over, I want to focus on this. Yes. Because we did our first one, it was really successful and I wanted to do another one. I wanted that. It's a startup. It's like you're gonna do a startup within right. your old startup. Right, exactly. <laughs> so then the guy who hired me came in and uh, he just had, he just wanted to go in a different direction. So that was a real interesting uh, learning experience because once the CEO says you're out, you're out. Mm. There is just, it's, you can't expect your board to come back and, and support you. They are now behind the new CEO. And yeah. I'm like, what the hell, man? I spent five years of my life. I turned this around for you and this is how you're going to treat me? 
It's like I get this letter on my doorstep terminating my employment. Literally like a pink slip. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going, you know, how classless is that, right? Uh, so no, like, come into my office, let's talk about this, you know, let's work on a transition or nothing. So, um, so I wasn't doing anything for several months. And then this trustee um, offer came. Hmm. So I was just having lunch with, with a few of my friends and they said, hey, maybe you want to try and do this. So it was an idea that had already been cooked up, but it was just kind of like a business plan. And so they needed it to actually get executed. So I was like, all right. And so that was like a random connection? Or yeah. There was, there was no like, hey, this hey, is the investor in this company. About, and about so and so. Um, privacy, you know, and I didn't even know that was an issue. <laughs> I don't even either. So... Explain to me how trustee makes money. Okay, so everybody who uses the trustee seal on their website. Everybody, like if you're a website or your license. business. So everybody pays the annual fee. And then we had some large, you know, all the large um, companies like Microsoft and Yahoo at the time, uh, Excite, all the big portal companies were giving money. So is that the same as like... Uh, VeriSign doing SSL or is that completely different? It's completely different because SSL, you're actually buying a software, right? You're using the SSL software. Basically what we're doing is if you put the, the trustee seal on your site, it's saying that you are adhering to like at, the, at that time, five of these minimally accepted privacy standards. Mm, so, so you have people that will do an audit of this company and your stamp of approval. So it's yes. all about... Building a brand. Yes, totally. So how did you build the brand? Um, it helps when this is a very, very hot industry that is going to enable e-commerce globally. Because in the European Union, personal information is the property of the citizen. It is not the property of the company who has collected it. Historically, in the United States, if you fill out any sort of warranty card, that is now the information of Black & Decker of Whirlpool, of Sears, and they can, and that's why there was a junk mail, you know, virus because everybody had your name and address so they could keep sending you stuff because of the one, 2% rule, right? So in the European Union, you cannot do that. So the European Union was saying to the US companies who are counting on eyeballs and global e-commerce, if you guys don't protect the personal information of European citizens, you cannot sell to Europeans. So part of the internationalization strategy of any company, especially you at that time. You have to post a privacy policy. Hmm. And it has to have these five minimally acceptable, uh, you got to disclose what your privacy policy is. You have to let you know the citizen hmm. access it. If they want to delete it, you got to delete it. If they want to change, you got to let them change it. Um, any changes have to be noted in your privacy policy. Because historically, you would not, they, U.S. companies would not understand why they needed to do that. But because the European Union was pressuring the Department of Commerce saying, you better get your companies to do something. You got to remember when this was, right? It was when the, the internet was all coming out. So, so what, yeah, what time frame was this? Mid-90s, late 90s? No, late 80s. No, no, sorry, late 90s. Yeah, yeah, late 90s. Because 2000 is when everything just went nuts. So it was interesting. Um, so if you have somebody who is forcing these companies to do something, like little trustee is not going to do anything, but it is the best interest 
of all of these different search engines and, and key players on the internet to make sure that these, these um, channels to international commerce are wide open. So it started with really the legal guys understanding what the issues were and that if they didn't find an industry self-regulatory body, which was trustee, that the government would have to come in and legislate or they would not be able to have these open borderless markets. Right. So really the big players, in, and I think there were like six to eight large portal sites, you know, Excite, Lycos, uh, Microsoft, Netscape, um, I forget, but we had probably about 60 or 70% of the top 100 websites using the trustee logo. And it was hitting like 90% of all users were going to these top 100 sites. At, at what point? Like from launch? Oh, it was fast. Like 12 months. <laughs> really? And and so kind of the post-mortem, or even at the time, I'm sure you recognize, like your growth is going to be essentially this is a this is going to come from the government or you're going to do it now and this you're going to trust trustee to do so it. So we let the government be the pressure, the hammer to say, yeah. what are you guys going to do? You can't regulate yourself. You need a, a, a independent regulatory body. So why not do like an association, like everybody in the nonprofit versus a for-profit company? We were nonprofit at that time. Oh, really? For-profit now. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So how did the business expand while you were there? Did it kind of go beyond that? So we had this big campaign because privacy was this huge, huge, huge issue. And so we had, I think the, those eight portal companies and I forget what, what uh, conference it was, but we had just this big blitz. And I think we had millions and millions of trustee uh, banner ads that all of these portal sites were displaying as a way to advertise to everybody, look for the trustee label, look for the trustee seal. And I think it was the biggest advertising campaign of its time. This is in the 2000... Right, right around 1999. Huh. So it was like, whose idea was that within the company? To kind of Mine. do this blitz. Ours. Yeah? Yeah. And but so see, you're like, I'm going to put together this massive market oh, banner ad budget. Oh, it's cats, baby. I mean, you know, it's like you got these eight fierce competitors. And even at the last minute, people are like wanting to pull out. It's like, wait, 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 wait. And you're talking like each of them have millions of banner ads that they're going to give you over this 30-day period, right? And, and it's like, no, 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 no. If, you, if you're not in, it loses the effectiveness. And, okay, if you excite or not in, then Netscape's not going to be in, then Yang's not going to be in. The whole idea was everybody is, is kind of rallying around privacy and these privacy standards hmm. because it's a message that they're trying to send that they are... Um, they are concerned with users' privacy. It must have been an intense time in the company. It was. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, See, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. You know? I mean, you know, when I went in, did I have this grand idea that this is what was going to... No. But things start evolving and, you know, things you have absolutely no knowledge about start happening. And to me, that's the fun part about doing a startup. It's like... It, it's how do you now take all of this that's going on and create something that's going to move your company forward, that's going to really put you on the map. Hmm. Interesting. 
So the same kind of group of co-founders that you you came alongside, uh, did you guys stick together all the way? Okay, so it was it. So Trusty was conceptualized by two different industry organizations: Electronic Frontier Foundation and CommerceNet. So CommerceNet, obviously, from their so side, random. Sorry. <laughs> Electronic Frontier Foundation, they were really. Uh, focused on kind of the civil liberties, civil rights. Are they still um, around? I think so. You know. Really? Yeah. They're on the we'll Look that up. Electronic Frontiers Association. Frontier Foundation. Foundation. Yeah. So both of them felt, you know, something had to be done about privacy. So they wanted to create this this third party. And um, Booz Allen had done um, the initial business plan for it. And so now they needed somebody to run it. And so I just come off upside. It's like, hey, what do you think about privacy? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but the interesting thing, right, is, you know, upside, I didn't start that. Um, trustee, that wasn't my idea. But once you start working and trying to figure out, I don't know, maybe I'm just, you know, I, I can sell out really easily, but I, bec I can become very passionate about Right. You, you, once you're in, you're selling. in. Yeah. And why it's important. And, you know, it only works if you can, um, if it's a win for everybody. It can't just be a win for trustee and not a win for the web companies, right, for the websites. If it's a win for their websites by using a trustee seal, then we win too. So it was constantly trying to figure out how do we work with these different large sites that were really, you know, just processing all this traffic through them into, you know, posting privacy statements. Hmm. So it was super interesting, but it was a lot of fun, actually. You were almost a single founder then, because if they were like, hey, we yeah. have this business plan, we're foundations, this is our right. goals and interests, and so I Here's, here, you do this. Right, so I hired all the people. Yeah. And yeah, found the money. I mean, figured out what the strategy was going to be. I mean, my board, my board told me I should be going, this one board member, she told me I should be going to PTA meetings and try and do this poll thing, you know, so that, you know, all these parents will tell uh, Yahoo, you know, you really should post a, a privacy statement. I was like, you got to be kidding me. That is not going to work. <laughs> it's me. You know, I think we had six people. It's like, how many PTAs are there in this country? It's like crazy. It's like, well, you can help me. Why don't you take, you know, <laughs> you take California. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so it's something different. Um, but really at the cutting edge of, of what was going on huh. with the internet. Cool. So we can, I'll kind of reset, hit the reset button a little bit. Um, right, shall we start at the beginning now? I did want to talk about trustee a lot because okay. I was really... Uh, I know I know most of the and we got to talk about you know pace and, and uh, that's awesome but I I know more of that part of your story and so I was really kind of curious to get to trustee mm -hmm. stuff so that's yeah. why I was you know really interested to kind of get some of the background and uh, get some of the landscape of I mean going even earlier um, you know you going and starting in the tourism industry right and then from there yeah. kind of figuring out you want to do tech and you get your MBA um, and then you go be a tech analyst. Somewhere, and then Shout upside happened, kind of. Yeah. Well, I had I was in brain injury rehab for about a year. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was a business manager of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, it's 
it's been eclectic, but I think the the main thing is that they were all pretty much struggling startups. Huh. Wait, so the brain injury startups. rehab was a center that you were we managing? Had, yeah, we had we had uh, three different centers that I was managing, one in Escondido, one in Gilroy, and one in San Jose. And so they were all startups, they were all struggling, and we had to figure out how we're going to make that thing work, right? So you must just be attracted stuff. or there are people yeah. are like walking down the street and we're yeah. like, her, she can, <laughs> she can help us. She has the look. You know why? Because if it's not, um, if it's not dire, I get pretty bored. <laughs> well, you found that out pretty early on then in your career. Yeah. If, uh, I, it's gotta be like, it's gotta be like a train crash. Well, that and Susan, I, I would, um, perceive that even when you were in, working in the tourism industry in your first couple of years, in San Francisco, and you're like, the action's over there. I need to be over there in you know, terms I'm not of that technology. Smart, right? I'm not that smart, <laughs> actually. So I was in Santa Clara, okay, at okay. the Marriott, right by Great America. So I, I, after UH, when I got my degree in travel industry management, I went to Maui to work for the Marriott in Kanapali, the oh. opening. So I worked there for two and a half years. And my initial idea was I was going to work there the rest of my life on Maui. You know, ever since I was a kid, my mom's from Maui. My cousins are there. We always used to go over there in the summertime. I used to have a great time going, when I grow up, I'm going to live on Maui for the rest of my life. Well, two and a half years later was, was about all it took for me to like say, okay, that was not what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> so I had this opportunity to transfer with the Marriott to either Torrance or Santa Clara. I picked Santa Clara because it looked like it was closer to the ocean. Naturally. Okay. That's yeah. how Hawaii girl. <laughs> yeah. That's how that's how <laughs> that's a decision paradigm was. was. Yeah. yeah. So I went there and I was working there for two and a half years. And basically what I found out about the hotel industry is you have to keep moving. If you want to move up, you gotta keep moving. You go to different sorts of hotels, small hotels, big hotels, corporate hotels, resort hotels. And I did not like moving. That's when I, and, and then I met my, my, uh, my future husband and mm -hmm. he wasn't moving. So that's when I went to San Jose state and got my MBA. Cause I had to just figure park. things out. Kind I of. had to park in, in that area. When I came out that having, getting that analyst position was the first one I got. And it was in the technology industry. Oh, interesting. See, I'm not that smart. <laughs> I just follow this random universe and it all works out. Yeah. You know, so that's why I tell students is don't fret about where you're going to go work. Look at the kind of skill set that you're going to develop and think about what kind of skill set you need to be successful. And as long as it's you're checking off the list of these skills that you're developing, go for it. Nobody says you got to stay there the rest of your life. If, you know, uh, 18 months to two years, you know, it's not keeping you challenged or you feel you're maxed out, go find another position where you're going to build your skill set even further and mm -hmm. find another opportunity. You know, because the one thing that I, I told my, my employees every time I hired them is I cannot guarantee you that in six months to a year, you're going to have a job. But I can guarantee you that six months or a year from now, your skill set is going to be much stronger than what you came in with. And that's what you're building, That's right? the type you, of person you kind of need to attract too, right? right? You that are sees the a, a startup and you've got to try and, and build yourself out 
so that your net worth is, is or your, your value is maximized. So try and build the skills that you need. So what are the skills you need? Well, it really depends on what you want to do, right? I mean, for me, it was, I was, you know, I obviously wanted to run my own company. So when I went into trustee, one of the biggest things that I knew I was going to have to do, I was going to have to be a public speaker because this is a completely new idea as far as online. You're going to have to communicate the value props over and over and over again. I was going to have to be a salesperson, (laughs) which even at the magazine, we had a really good sales team. I didn't do a lot of the outside stuff. I was the inside. I was operations. Make sure that we're going to make money. I really needed to be the outside person. That's interesting that you had that operations kind of building a team, not doing the outside sales, transitioning to another role on, on the executive level, CEO driving the ship, and you have to do a completely new skill set that right. you hadn't had at least quote unquote practical experience doing right. before. And I had I was forced to do it. <laughs> Right, because you have to become the voice of privacy for an industry. I had to go to Washington D.C. and talk to the Department of Commerce. Ah, you know? lobbying. Fine. Yeah, I had to talk to all the people. You know, these top 100 um, um, websites, trying to convince them and their general counsels why they need to post a privacy uh, policy. Tons of conferences, and that's where I developed the ability to speak in front of a group. Huge. I mean, to me, you got to be a good communicator. So big communicator, what else? You know, they say that like common sense is very uncommon. But I really think in a startup, you, you need to have a lot of common sense. You need to know when to pivot. You need to know who to hire. You, know, you need to know when to cut people loose. Um, and I think over the jobs that I've had, because I've, I had so many, I mean, I would, I would stay at a job for maybe two years, is um, I had a lot of experience in that. Like I knew good people, bad people. When I was working for the Marriott, I learned how you terminate people. You know, the, the one reason why large companies are so successful is because they have a lot of standard operating procedures, right? SOPs. And so it's a great place to learn. You know, I just took the whole Marriott handbook and just kind of just butchered it all up, and that was my handbook. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. At Upside? Yeah. Because, you know, it... No need to rewrite the wheel, right? Exactly. And it's like, you should know how much vacation you have, how much sick time you have, you know, how you're going to write people up if, if there are performance issues, what, what holidays you're going to have off, and it just makes everything easier. So it's not like this year you have uh, Martin Luther King Day off, and next year you don't. That's what causes problems, morale problems. If everybody knows as soon as they start, this is, you know, what, what your benefits are and your code of conduct is going to be, it's just so much easier. So how did you learn to fire somebody at Marriott? Was that a boss well, we, or we somebody? We fired or a lot of people at <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there is a process, right? At the Marriott, you get three chances. And each time, it's it you everything's documented. Like three strikes to, and you're out, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, could because you don't want to have the the uh, unemployment issue. You want to show that you have you know given that person every uh, opportunity to correct their behavior. They know that there's there's a problem, and if they don't correct it, then they're gone, and the company doesn't pay for the unemployment. So uh, common sense, kind of obviously encapsulates a lot so we have communication common sense and you, you mentioned various things collaboration is, is very important 
uh, creativity. I think the, the big thing about understanding different industries is you can draw different business models that typically are not um, associated with other industries. So, you know, in publishing, there's a specific business model, you know, that if you want to be successful, your editorial drives your audience, which drives ad sales, right? It's just this virtuous loop and you can either be spiraling up or you can be spiraling down. Hmm. So, you know, I just always use that same. I learned um, how to sell at Upside because we're constantly selling ad space. Um, so I think all of those sorts of skills contributed to an understanding of business, which enables you to make good business decisions. Do you think, um, you know, with kind of piecing all these things together, you know, how, how to sell creativity, collaboration, common sense, good communicator, um, did you even think while you were doing this at the time, oh, I need to learn all these things. Or looking, you're just like, I just, I know this needs to get done. And then I go here and then I know this needs to get done. And like, do you, would you kind of classify yourself as a consummate learner? Like you're always excited to learn new stuff? Definitely. In fact, you know, it, when we're talking about um, firing people, okay, and, and having people report to you, towards the, you know, the last couple jobs that I've had, I did not want to manage people anymore. I mean, it's like, been there, done that. It's not fun. I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I had an inside person, and they handled the operations, and I would be the outside person, and I'd handle sales, right? So I'd go out, I'd hunt, I'd bring in the customer, and then the inside person would then take it from there. So I could go out and hunt for more customers. And so that became my role because I just didn't want to do this other part anymore. It's boring after you do it several times. It's just a big pain in the butt. It's very bureaucratic. So for me, yes, definitely. I always like to do something different. The worst thing that can happen for me is I get bored. And that's when it's time to move and do something else. Yeah. Because the first time you get a customer, especially with, like, I think Microsoft was one of the first big bogeys that we got to put, put uh, our seal on their site. It was like, yeah. I mean, everybody's went wild, right? It's yeah. Like, and then the next time it's like, oh, Yahoo came in. Ah, that's great. Yeah. Then, then it's like, oh, you know, Netscape came in. All right, keep working. <laughs> it's, you know, it just ceases to be that same level of excitement. Hmm. And th that's when you start getting momentum and you're starting to get growth. And that's when I think it's time for somebody else to, to run that, that ship because it becomes more of a care and maintenance and making sure that all that's lined up. Right. So how did, um, uh, kind of talking about the trustee example here, so you transitioned to uh, Chris uh, Babel, is that right? So that's the CEO that took over a trustee? That was 2010, so maybe it was way before that. I get, regardless yeah, whether it was, it was Chris, way it was that. way before yeah. that. I think uh, the current CEO has been there for four or five years, so I probably just uh, got got that uh, that transition wrong. But more or less, like I'm just curious, transitioning you transitioned completely out of the company at that point and you you know told the board hey i think it's time for someone else to scale this to the next level right. i've hit my peak this is what's best for the company how did that kind of whole process go both in terms of telling your employees 
understanding yourself, talking to your board, and then well, finding the, your replacement. You know, the first thing is, you know, you've got to be happy in what you're doing. If you're not happy in what you're doing, you shouldn't be there. You're not doing your company, your employees, or anybody any favors by hanging around. And and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm the startup person. I know now that that is my sweet spot. And that's what gets me excited. That's what I'm passionate about. Trustee was starting to take off. We, we like I said, we had this humongous advertising campaign. We were getting, you know, huge penetration in the top 100 most visited websites, you know, during the day. Uh, I think we got like 90% penetration as far as every single user who went on would have would have come across our, our seal. It's like, okay, I have no interest in now, you know, getting all these second tier, third tier, fourth tier, because now you build a website, you had to have a privacy statement. It was de facto. It, it wasn't like optional anymore. Everybody had to have a privacy statement. So now it was getting, in my perspective, more of a slog. It's getting more administrative. It's how do you handle all of these different things? And, you know, it's, it's more about building systems. So I, I can feel it. I know when I'm not engaged. I know when I'm bored. And so I had the conversation with my board. You know, my team totally understood where I was coming. And I think you have to just be uh, honest and, and tell them. And, you know, so we worked it out. You know, they look for, for somebody else, you know, and, and we transitioned. And at that point, it was like, okay, I didn't have anything lined up. But I knew I wanted to do another startup at that point. So a group of friends and I were, were, were kind of getting together going, okay, what, what are we going to do next? And we're working on that, you know, the whole the whole trustee thing. They found somebody else to run with it. Um, but the thing that I also don't like, and I realize that a lot of people aren't in the in the position where they can actually um, do this, is I do not like to look for a job while employed. I don't think it's honest, if you will. When you see somebody coming in and they're all dressed up and they leave for two hours. And they never do that regularly. What are they doing? You know, they're looking for a job, and that's where I just think, you know, I just want a clear conscience that I'm giving 100 percent. And when the time is is has come that it's it's no longer working for me, then I'm going to leave the car full and ready to roll, and I'm going to leave and find something else. And you know, you save up enough money that you know you're not going to have to be homeless. But you should have be you should have developed the skill set to enable you to find another job really quickly. Mm. So was it right after trustee? You know, you've done the successful San Francisco tech stuff. You've been in Silicon Valley. You've had this wild ride. Was it that point where you were like, it's time to go home? <laughs> no. In fact, we're going to start another company. We're working on a business plan and everything. So the part that is a little confusing is when I went to work at Trustee, I was actually working for a company called Vio Systems that was a consulting company. Oh. And I was um, the consultant for Trustee. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. All right. So I was working for Vio Systems. Vio Systems was a for-profit company. And for one year, I worked for Vio, Vio Systems on Trustee. Okay. In that one year, I got vested for one year of stock options. Then Vio Systems, instead of becoming a consulting company, they had pivoted, they were gonna do business to business software. Okay, so they went and they they 
spun out and they said, Susan, you can either come with us or you can stay with trustee. Well, I just spent a year building trustee. I was not about to yeah, say bye-bye. Right. So I said, I'm going to go with trustee, but I exercised my, my options from VO Systems. VO Systems eventually is sold or merges with CommerceNet, which becomes the hottest IPO of 1999. And it was a very hot market. So my 25% shares from VO Systems uh, became worth a ton of money. Okay, so that was all happening in 1999, right when I left trustee and I was going to start up another company. Oh, so that was happening when you were leaving trustee. So that, I, that was over... No, as... it's after I left trustee. Oh, you'd already was, left. Yeah, and I was thinking about starting this other company and working with a few of my friends on that company. And then I was pregnant with my second kid. And um, I was told by people, because I asked, that it's probably not a good idea to go look for money while you're pregnant. So I was going, okay, I'm going to wait to have the baby, and then we'll go and find money for this new idea. So uh, my son was born in September, and then I had this other, this next epiphany of, and, and you know, the, the, the commerce uh, one stock, I think it went public in the fall, right around when he was born. 2000? 1999. Yeah. It was the end of the fall of 1999. And then it just blew up. I mean, literally blew up. I'd just be watching the stock and every day. I mean, you know, I'd be making like $100,000 a day. Golly. No, it was like totally freaky. And um, that's when I go, okay, look, I got a, I got a newborn. I have a four-year-old. And why do I want to do another startup now? Right. Now to do the startup of family kind of thing. Right. And so I had enough money now that I would never have to work again if I didn't want to. It's like, why are you doing it? Because it is so absorbing when you start up and you're the CEO. you got to work harder than anybody else. Right. Right. You have to set the bar. So at that point, I said, you know what? I'm not sure, you know, I want to do that. And so I didn't. Uh, we decided to... To not do the startup. And then my dad passed away the next year oh, in wow. 2000 in March. And he kept waiting for us to move back home to Hawaii. And, you know, it's never a good time to uproot yourself. And I was there for 17 years. And I said, but my plan was always to move back. And so that's when I just said, we got to move back. Hmm. So I gave us a year to get ready to move. And in 2001, I moved back. Wow. That must have been an intense time then to kind of close that chapter. And you haven't looked back and you have, uh, you've been here. It's been great. Yeah. 15 years now back home. Yeah. And wow. I've been home almost as long as I've been away. Actually. I guess. Yeah. And you calculate the 17 So it was years. interesting because when I left home, it's like I'm, I'm doing business the second time around. Cause the first time around I wasn't doing business. You know, I had to create a network here. I had to find out what was going on here because I had no business connections here at all. Because when I left, I was like, you know, a 23-year-old hotel worker. So it's been fun. I mean, I came back at the right time, I think, because a lot was going on in Hawaii. You know, tech industry was just kind of... The interesting thing about Hawaii is everything's late. 
So, you know, Silicon Valley, everything had busted already, and it was just getting started in Hawaii. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Two to one. You left the bust, and then you come, and you're like... And things are growing. (laughs) You know, they never busted, because they had never boomed. Even after, like, September 11th. September 11, that was, yeah, that was right that first year that I was there. Mm-mm. Things were gaining momentum because 221 was, was out. Oh, yeah. So there was a lot so of... So can you explain what Act 221 was? So Act 221, it, in, in hindsight, was very, very controversial. But the intent of it by the state legislatures was to stimulate uh, investment in high-growth, high-tech startups. So if you met this certain criteria... You are labeled a qualified uh, high-tech startup, and any investor in those companies would pretty much get 100% tax credit. So it pretty much took any a huge amount of risk out of it because the the way it was set up, I believe the tax credits were greatest in the early years and then tapered off. Might have been like 40, 30, 20, 10, or something like that. Or it's, yeah, it was, there's 10, a scale 10, down. Right? Yeah. So in the first year, you'd get like a 40% tax credit if the company stayed in business. So, you know, it's if the company stayed in business for five years, then pretty much you got your money back in tax credits from the state and you still had equity and the potential of an upside. So it, it was a very, very generous um, legislation. And there were a lot of people who then decided that they were going to start investing in tech startups. And there was a lot of liquidity for tech startups at that point. Hmm. Did you, um, you came in at the right time then. So you kind of had the opportunity with Act 221 to right. take advantage. And right. Do you think, um, like you say, there was controversial people on both sides of the fence. You know, where, where kind of do you stand on that debate? You know, it, again, hindsight is the best site. And it probably could have been written in a way that people could not would not be so easy for people to take advantage of, and it would have um, better served the the industry. I think the intent was awesome. I think you know the legislators who who moved forward on that were very uh, gutsy because it was a leading edge um, um, legislation of its time. But you know if it's if it's not written really tightly, there are going to be people who are going to figure out ways to exploit the legislation and I think that was done and you know for example movie companies would come in they would get a hundred percent write-off on it but they had no intention of staying and having their production companies in Hawaii so you know and, and there were other startups that that would just you know be the living dead for five years so you could get your hundred percent tax uh, credits uh, when they probably should have been you know dead within 18 months of their investment, perhaps. So um, It's kind of the opposite, right? A lot of times companies, maybe a founder will come after 18 months and say, hey, I took a million bucks. Here's the last $500,000. We're not going to keep going. Have some of your principal back. Versus they might be like, oh, no, just keep going. Just spend it. Yeah, just keep (laughs) going. And so, you know, they weren't really doing anything in the last few years, but they were still filing tax returns. They were still live, you know, by the qualifications of, of the legislation. So, you know, I think there could be things, perhaps it doesn't have to be 100%. Um, maybe you have third-party investors who are professional investors, so you take out the whole, you know, how do I get around this, this kind of thing, uh, where you put money into a fund, for example. 
where you have professional managers who are, who are rated on not so much the tax credits, but what their return is. Um, so I think there are different ways that can be done. I think, though, that the water is poisoned already. That yeah. it, it's gonna, we're going to be very hard-pressed to see any sort of um, really kind of cutting-edge legislation supporting technology from a funding perspective just because it was so controversial. Yeah, people still remember. Yeah. Exactly. You know, funny story, I remember uh, at, in 2000, 2006, I started working at Central Pacific Bank, and uh, within a year I was in commercial banking, and we had multiple clients, and, and these, these, if the legislation was in the early 2000s, they were definitely a few years late, but we had insurance companies being like, we want to invest in this qualified high technology business, right? These QHTVs or yeah. whatever they were. And like probably a 20% of the portfolio, I was managing like a $100 million loan exposure for the bank uh, with some officers and doing the credit underwriting. And yeah, I remember multiple uh, to be unnamed offices sitting in kind of figuring out how can we structure this so that this business is a qualified high technology business so right. we can take advantage of this. Right. And they had no interest in, no idea or whatever. Or, or you, had, you had large companies that were spitting out their IT departments. Oh, really? Right. So I didn't see that. And see, so now that Makes becomes sense. a qualified high tech business. Right. Again, going back to like kind of maybe abusing these loopholes right. and good intent, but you know, uh, consequences that couldn't be foreseen maybe by anybody. And yeah. Exactly. You know, looking back. People but. are very clever. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so kind of uh, talking about PACE, like how did uh, Pacific Asia Center for Entrepreneurship, you've been the um, executive director for how long? Since 2008, so eight years now. So the longest job I've ever had. I was going to say, career. Susan, yeah. you're not, uh, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, say anything uh you know, no bachi here. Maybe, hopefully, we'll have uh, you know, pace. We'll have you for the next eight years. And you guys are opening up a brand new space just down the hall. That's yep. very, uh, yep. very exciting. Congratulations! Uh, looking forward to that furniture getting in, or whatever, <laughs> whatever is uh, the last remaining paint and stuff that got to get there. Things move at a snail's pace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure uh, it moves faster when when you're back there with the cattle prod. Uh, yeah, uh, cattle prods don't work in, in, at the university. <laughs> they have their process that they need to go through. Sure, sure. Uh, now I kind of want to spend some time talking about. You obviously, you didn't have to get back involved in entrepreneurship in any way. Why, why did you choose uh, Pace as the opportunity to like, yeah, this is it. This so, is how I'm going to be involved. So as we talked about earlier, I came back in 2001. I was doing some um, investing, angel investing. You know, um, Rob Robinson, I was one of the founding angel members. Uh, in fact, we, we met at UH with bento lunches. That's how it all started. Oh, really? Because um, it yeah. was at the time. When you guys first started, it was called UH Angels. UH Angels, right. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I was doing that. Um, just various um, boards, nonprofit, for-profit, technology startups. And then um, right around... Oh, I was kind of keeping myself busy, and like I said, I had two two young children, and they were going to school, and I was involved in their in their schools and field trips and things like that. Then in 2008, uh, Vance Roley, the dean of the uh, College of Business, he asked me if I would um, run Pace because I think they did they did not have a director for I don't know four or five years maybe. Oh wow. 
Yeah, I was just kind of running on autopilot. Another turnaround, Susan. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. And and you know what? I mean, as as weird as this sounds, it's like you come to Hawaii, right? You have this reputation that you have built in the past that everybody knows about. It is starting another startup. And what if it doesn't work well? You know, people are just going to remember you for your last. <laughs> your is last that what drives you every day? No, it did. I mean. It, it, it's, it's funny to say it, but that was a part of me that was thinking, God, you really want to do this because if it doesn't work well, then, you know, you're going to be in charge of, you're, you're going to have been the person who uh, failed at pace. <laughs> so uh, I actually told, uh, the first time he came, I said, no, I'm not interested in doing that. And the reason he wanted to do it was because he came from the University of Washington of a very successful entrepreneurship program, yeah. uh, center program uh, there in Washington. So he wanted to do the same thing here at UH. So I said, no, I'm not interested in working full time. You know, I got the life right now. Um, you know, I got time for myself, time for my family, you know, community. And uh, he came back um, several months later and said, okay, what is it going to take to get you to, to work at Pace? And I said, I'm, I'm not interested in working full time. You know, I, I have this balance finally and you know my kids are young and I'm not interested in in uh, working full-time so we set it up where I would work part-time and um, I think three and I was gonna be the interim director until they found somebody else and um, just in case I did not enjoy working in a bureaucracy and uh, he's been fantastic about not making me have to deal with the bureaucracy and he's been great about just giving me uh, free reign to, to develop different programs. So I think we had like three programs when I came in and now we've got over 20 programs. Um, so having the, the leeway to just try different things and right. experiment and see what works, what doesn't work. Uh, last year we raised uh, $2 million to fund the next five years as well as the, the new space that you're talking about. Uh, some of the money is going to go to outfitting this this space where there's going to be a big collaborative space, and um, so good things. Uh, yeah, I think three years down the line, I told him, okay, you can take that interim off. <laughs> yeah, took three years. Yeah. Well, seventeen pro like you go from three to twenty, and I'm sure you got two or three more on the hopper. <laughs> but um, that's be a little over two per year on average. Yeah, that's not a lot. Not a lot. No. Should I ask Crystal and Tracy if that's okay? Okay, they would probably say it's a lot. And, you know, pretty much we're, we're capped out right now because they just don't have the time to do any more programs. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the great thing is they do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, and I, one of the first uh, events that I was uh, uh, involved with was the Startup Weekend you guys did here. And that event was so well run, um, I was like... Who puts this on because yep. they got their stuff together yep, and um, you as the visionary and like you said, Tracy and Crystal do all the work. So to, to credit them and your your ability to kind of uh, bring them in, you guys are a crack team. So you yeah, should be they're, uh, they're awesome. I mean, stoked. the level of professionalism, you know, that I think people have come to expect from PACE programs and they're going to know that we're not wasting their time, that if we say it's going to start at this time, we, we generally always yeah. try and start it on time. So... Um, yeah, so we're capped at that, and so we're, we're I'm hoping that this summer we'll hire a third person so okay. that we can we can um, continue to 
you know, provide the, the, the students more and the community more programs. So kind of talking about UH's, uh, the role UH plays in the entrepreneurial community, um, you know, how do you see PACE's mission in, their, in your role, kind of whether it's evolving or wh where do you fit? I think as far as, uh, it's not even so much PACE as it is my feeling that university uh, students, they need to think entrepreneurially, whether they want to start their own business or go work for somebody else. It's not an option. You need to think entrepreneurially. You know, I, I challenge people to think of one industry that has not been touched by technology and the motto changed in the last 20 years. You know, gone are the days where, you know, you, you get a management, a junior management position, you do everything your boss says, and, you know, you work your way up into a senior management position. That's not the way it works anymore. You know, everyone is expected to contribute. And I think that younger people actually have this inherent advantage to be able to embrace technology's changes and to be able to see where technology is going. And what they have to be able to do is tie in what they do at work and what technology is enabling and really be the driver of this next wave of how their business is going to be done. And I think senior level managers are looking for you know, their, their new hires to be able to help with that. And unless you are comfortable with being creative, being able to think critically and like what we're trying to teach them about how do you build a business model, how do you mitigate risk, you know, how do you, you test your, your assumptions to see if you really are spot on or not, how do you work with other departments to, to actually get something to be able to be executed. And then the communication skills, you know, I think are, are huge. You got to be able to communicate what your idea is, what your vision is to many different people. If you're successful in doing that, I think you can be a very successful uh, contributor in the workforce in the 21st century. So, you know, that's something that entrepreneurs need to have. I think successful entrepreneurs possess those characteristics. So as far as PACE is concerned, I don't expect, you know, the thousand students that we reach every year to all start businesses. It's not going to happen, okay? At least not when they're graduating from school. But if they can think entrepreneurially, if they can be part of this, this entrepreneurial movement with Bank of Hawaii or with Island Insurance, that's awesome, right? We're doing a good job of, of preparing them for the workforce. And then obviously there are people who, there's students who want to start their own business. And so we're there to help them trying to figure out if there's a there there, and then how do you begin to execute on your vision? So in equipping and kind of preparing students, you know, for all these different qualities, um, you know, the, the programs you do, do you kind of have KPIs or measurements of success that you identified? I hate that stuff. If it's right. So no. It, yeah. Yeah. It, and, and that's when people go, oh, well, how many people, you know, it's like, I have no idea. But you know what? If the room is full, I'm happy. You know, it's. You know, and I, I guess we can get away with it, if you will, because we're an educational institution and nobody's pressuring us to quantify everything. I mean, we keep It'd be hard to quantify a placement type and, of and deal anyway. And it's hard anyways. to quantify 10 years from now. You know, yeah. people in 2008, did they start a business? How many people have they employed? You know, they could be all over the world by now. They should be all over the world by now. So it's, it's number one, difficult to keep track of them and where they are. And, and 
so my point is, you know, we try to teach entrepreneurial skill sets. And when they first get out of school, you know, it's like when I worked at the Marriott, I have no problem telling students, go work for a big company. Go get some vertical skill set. Get some industry knowledge about something so that when you come out with your idea of what you're going to fix, it's a big market. It's an actual real problem because you've experienced that within your, your work. And there's more of a chance it'll be successful and it'll be scalable. And when you look at successful entrepreneurs, they're typically in their mid-30s or older. And there's a reason, because they have vertical expertise, they have skill set, they have a network, right? And, and everything just kind of comes together at that point. So if we can kind of start building the foundation of entrepreneurial thinking, my hope is that by the time they hit their 30s and they're hitting their stride in their career, that they'll be able to you know, take everything they've learned and be able to actually create something. Right. So what about kind of the commercialization pathway when, um, you know, we with Accelerate UH and, and Pace, we have this, this graph, which you, um, I believe, um, wrote on a whiteboard at one point, and then we designed it and have this graph now of Pace sits here in the very early, you know, you're the seedling, right? And then, um, you know, in the next phase, there's like, and part of that's a business plan competition, breakthrough right. innovation challenge. Uh, then there's there was a gap previously before like upside funding right. uh, and Accelerate UH now fits in there where we're investing, we're doing more of a formal program right. with Accelerator. Um, you know, envisioning that commercialization pathway, how can A, I guess, what do you think you're get, uh, doing really well through the university and what can we look to improve on? So, I mean, as, as far as the university is concerned, I mean, the main thing that we keep our focus on is this is an educational, our, our mission is education, to educate people. Our mission is not to start companies. I'm not being measured by how many companies am I starting and people I'm employing. Obviously, we'd like that to be an outcome because we do think that entrepreneurship is going to be a stimulus, stimulus uh, for, the, for the local economy. Um, so then you have you know, the Accelerate UHs, whose that is their job, is to commercialize. What we're trying to do is we're trying to stock the, the, um, the channel. Right? We're trying to stock the funnel with all of these entrepreneurial ideas and entrepreneurs with the hope that you know, out of every 10 or 20, you're going to get one or two that actually want to take it to the next level. They have the idea, they have the skill set, and you know, they have that, the, the aptitude to, to you know, actually commercialize something. So we're really focused on trying to teach faculty and students what that entrepreneurial pathway looks like in a very safe environment. Right, where no one's a loser. Hmm. So we try to give them assistance. And one of the big things that I think uh, students don't realize is they have all of these programs and, and um, people who are available to them because they are students. You know, so Greg Kim will see you because you're a student. Pia Armour will see you because you're a student. And they'll all give you the benefit of their expertise pro bono. Once you leave these hallowed halls, you pay them. I'm laughing because I sat in Peter Rowan's class last Thursday. as some undergraduate marketing. And he asked me to give a presentation on resources available to students in Startup Paradise or, you know, through the university as well as in the community. And I did that. And one of my key takeaways at the end was take advantage of being a student. Like, 
taken like all of the and I mentioned the exact same thing you're talking about. So I was just kind of laughing that um, <laughs> that you're bringing it up then. You know, it's it's uh, even doing customer interviews, right? Exactly. I'm doing a student yes. project. And it can actually exactly. be a real business you're building, right? But people are way more receptive to that. And, and people, and, and in Hawaii particularly, and I think that's one of our strengths, is that everybody will talk to you. Uh, Very rarely, if you ask somebody for help, will they say, "I'm too busy." Everybody will help you, and if you're persistent, they will eventually return your call. The spirit of aloha. Exactly. I mean, the the interesting thing, I just last night, you know, the, these two local guys, uh, they came to a uh, a lecture. That Walter Dodds, the former CEO of uh, First Hawaiian Bank. K-Papa E.K. Ala lecture yeah, he did. exactly. So I interviewed him. One of the things he told the audience of, I don't know, 150, 200 people, hey, you know what? If you want to talk to me, come on up. And, and they, they, these two guys were the only guys who followed up with him. They've had a couple meetings with him now. No way. Um, yes. And, and he's following up with them as far as things that they're asking him for. They, they didn't go with any expectation that he was going to do anything. They just wanted to pick his brain, get his feedback. Wow. And he's helping them. Kudos to them, yeah. I mean, two guys out of 200 people there, you know, maybe about, I don't know, 75 to 100 were students. But what the heck? You know, hmm. the... Arguably, one of the most powerful guys in Honolulu is saying, hey, come talk to me. You know, let's have lunch. And two guys. And two, yeah. That? You got a hit rate of 1%, Susan. Well done. Toledo. <laughs> we don't want to have that at KPI. Right? <laughs> so. Yeah. So, so, so I think that's the thing. You're a student. You have all these opportunities that are available to you. We have like 50 or 60 uh, what we call Vipers, virtual professionals in residence. Vipers. They are, yeah, they are, you know, the senior level managers all throughout Honolulu in various um, various functions, banking, accounting, HR, IP. All that fun stuff. Yeah. Entrepreneurship. <laughs> and, and all it takes is like, I got this question, can I have an hour of your time? And they all are willing. It's not even yeah. like they're going to say no. Right. Yeah. So here's this whole pro this process. You just kind of come to our website. You type in your question. We'll forward it over to them, and they'll get back to you. Jeez. Uh, gosh. I'm gonna like pose as a student. And you're gonna get all these questions. Exactly. You want to do market <laughs> validation? There's 50 people. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Uh, do you think I I've heard this maybe from some others? And just curious to get your points, and then we'll kind of wrap it up and do do some uh, rapid fire Q and A if that's all right. But do we? Do you think there's a fear of failure? by students or people in sure. Hawaii more so than other places like is it a cultural more, thing I don't think it's more so I think no. everybody for failure I mean that's what I was telling you before I took I took this job I was thinking oh shoot man everything I'm working for it's like you know what if I what if it doesn't work out what if I'm a failure I mean I think no matter where you are in your life you always have that in the back of your mind well what if it doesn't work out and I think it, it, it's my opinion that the way you get over that little you know uh black thing sitting on your your shoulder saying don't do it don't do it you're gonna fail nobody's gonna respect you is that you we accept failure as part of taking a chance of, of if you're gonna take a chance if you're gonna take a risk there is always a chance of failure nobody wants to fail royally nobody wants the super fairy okay? <laughs> okay it wasn't the management's fault okay but nobody wants that. For anybody listening just look up super fairy and yeah. you'll know what she's talking about nobody wants this 
flaming hundred million dollar blow up, okay? But 99.9% .9 of the time, you will not fail that big. And the little failures you have will enable you to gain the confidence to make bigger and bigger decisions. That's why when you're younger, you should make as many different, or you should make as many mistakes as you can. Because that all goes into your, your knowledge, your collective knowledge, so that when a, a situation comes up, is more likely you will not make a mistake. But if you have never tried, your opportunity to make bigger and bigger mistakes as you get older, because now you are responsible for more and more, it becomes immense. And you become more and more paralyzed because you don't have the confidence to make that decision you haven't had experiences when you're younger. So I think one of the biggest problems of parenting is that parents don't let their kids make mistakes. Hmm. And it's all because they want to protect their kid, but the kids gotta make mistakes. They gotta fail at soccer so they can succeed at softball. I don't know, you know, it's, they've gotta find what they're good at because if they don't get that process, what are you good at? Yeah, and you as a parent kind of have to give them that leeway, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and let them discover what it is that they're good at. Don't rush in to rescue them whenever they're going to have a problem. Let them figure a way out because that breeds a self-confidence and a decision-making um, ability that they're going to need later on in life. Hmm. So, I mean, I'm a big proponent that, yes, there is risk. Um, I think parents are... Uh, intending to do the right thing by protecting their kids, but they should let them make small mistakes. Hmm. And, and the more small mistakes they, they make, the more confidence will, you know, you'll, start, you'll start gaining. Otherwise, you will never push the envelope if success is not making a mistake. It's coloring in all the bubbles correctly. Here's a trophy for, for participating. I hate that. Yeah, I figured you did. <laughs> Speaking of parenting, I wanted to ask you uh, a question about uh, as an investor. Like, I'm a, I'm a founder of this company and I come and pitch you as an investor. What are, what are the things that excite you to say, yeah, I'm going to write a check? So it's generally more than one conversation. What I look for is authenticity and a good idea. You know, if I think your idea is a good idea... Um, if I think that you're being honest with me and not uh, trying to pull the wool over my eyes or try, not trying to make me think that you know it all when I, it's obvious you don't or you're not answering the question that I'm asking, you know, there's so many things for investors that as soon as you lose that trust, they're turned off already. It, they don't have to invest in you. There are 50 other people who they could be looking at. So you've got to be honest. Because they want to know that you are open to a conversation, to other, are you coachable is huge. So, you know, who is your team? Is your idea great? If you're a young entrepreneur, are you coachable? Are you willing to listen? But are you still willing to push back too? If I have a backbone feel, still. Yeah. If you feel that I'm not on the right, I mean, there, there, entrepreneurship would be so easy if it was black and white. But entrepreneurship is all about gray. And it's not 50. It's 5,000 shades of gray. <laughs> Everything is gray. Because if it was easy, somebody else would have done it by now. So 
So you have to be very comfortable in this gray area of not having, not knowing what bubble to, to fill in. So, you know, I think people look for coachability, the ability to get other people's um, uh, opinions, the critical thinking as I was talking about before. Like if you talk to 10 people, what are you going to pick out that you're going to actually act on and what things are you not? So I think those are all important things. You know, there's definitely a likability factor because if I don't like you, there's no way I'm writing a check to you. Because I don't. Because you'd be you. spending time. I don't want to have to spend time with yeah. people I don't like. Right? Life's too short. Of course. And if I don't <laughs> like you, probably other other people are going to like you, and then who's going to buy your stuff? Good. All right. Be likable. Yes. <laughs> that's a good life lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so quick uh, wrap up with some rapid fire Q and A. So I'll just kind of ask a question, then you can say whatever that kind of first uh, first thing comes into your mind. So, what favorite thing about Hawaii? People. Do you have a favorite beach? My favorite beach is probably Makapu. Ooh, Makapu. Do you have a favorite golf course? We haven't talked about golf today. Yeah, my favorite golf course. You're wearing a uh, Hawaii Prince. Is that yeah? Hawaii Prince? No, that's not my favorite. Though. <laughs> I don't know. I've got a lot of favorite. Probably the neighbor islands of. My my most favorite one right now is Waialua. Actually, I just came back from Kauai last last week. I love Waialua. Oh yeah, yeah, I love that course. What's your handicap? My uh, handicap's like thirteen and rising. No, oh. <laughs> I'm in a slump right now. <laughs> that's that's like that's golf. That's two x better than I am. I would say probably. <laughs> um, yes. Do you uh, do you kind of follow any po- blogs or podcasts? Any that you recommend a lot? Mm, no, but I read a lot of like online um, uh, news, you know, daily news stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I like Civil Beat. There's this other one that I read every day called The Skim. Uh, I think it's kind of uh, focused more towards women. It's got that touch and feel, but it, 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 it's more about, you know, what happened yesterday. And, you know, they say, hey, this happened, and let me tell you why this is important. Okay. So you're up to date on kind of like what the latest and greatest and why it's important. Best book. And then I read a lot. I, you I do? I would say best book you've read recently. That's my next question. Mm. God, I don't know. You like nonfiction or fiction? I, I mostly read fiction, but I did like that Ash. Uh, Ash Moria for yeah. Lean. Uh, Running lean? Yeah. Yeah. Running lean. I did like that. Yeah, we should talk about that one. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Really practical. I think I like it's better. Stuff. I think it's I think better. I agree. More uh, intuitive. Yeah. Uh, even the lean canvas, I think, is better. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Um, We're going to use that canvas for this yeah. startup launch. Oh, good. Yeah. I'd be curious to see how, how you guys like that. Um, a startup founder or investor you admire and why? Uh, I can't really say. No? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was the, do you watch Netflix? Do you yeah. Netflix? What's the last show you binge watched? Oh, God, I don't know if that was on Netflix or Fire. But I'm, wa- I'm watching Crossing... Oh, God, see, I can't even remember. Okay, so on Netflix, I'm watching Bosch. Uh-huh. And then I'm watching this other one. I don't even remember what... It's Crossing Something. It's about Europe. And uh, this 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 team that does these cross border um, solves cross border crime mysteries. Oh, that sounds crossing fire or something like that. Huh. I'm watching that now. What is something in your career that you're 
like the most proud of. Probably trusty. And this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think trusty because it was a. Uh, you know, it was such a critical time in the startup of the internet and to have been a part of that and, and that's pretty awesome. But, you know, to affect so many lives like this, I think it's awesome. Any final tips for entrepreneurs or? Just do it. You know, don't overanalyze it. If you want to do something, just like I was telling you, if you want to do something, you should just do it. There are a million reasons why you shouldn't do it. And if you take that into consideration, you'll never be entrepreneurial because it doesn't make sense, but it's so much fun. Hmm. Well, Susan, this has been quite the, quite the privilege to uh, the pepper you with Q&A. <laughs> it's been a great discussion. I wish I had more time to stay. I actually got to uh, head off. I'm going to yeah, be on uh, yeah. bite marks and you've, you've, uh, <laughs> you've given generously of your time so far. So thank you for no, thank uh, you. You know, the hour plus. Anything Love for it. you. Though. Okay. Uh, thank you, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Susan rocked it in this episode. Like I said at the end of the interview, I wish we had more time. Thank you guys for listening as always. For all the cool stuff Susan and her team are doing at the University of Hawaii in the Scheidler School of Business at Pace, check out pace.scheidler.edu. We'll have the link on our show notes on our site, sultanventures.com. Please share this episode, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I'll love you forever. If you do rate and review and subscribe, let me know your username. Shoot me an email, luke at sultanventures.com, and I will get some swag over to you. This is... Luke Tucker signing off. Tune in next Thursday for another fantastic episode where we talk to angel investor Peter Rowan. Aloha.